And as we're preparing to, to give this morning, uh, what I'd like to do is highlight a couple of really important things uh, that you need to be aware of that are coming our way. Uh, in your bulletin, as there was last week we talked about it, there's an insert and it says prayer and fasting on it. And we are walking into a season uh, of the next couple weeks of as a church body and a church family fasting together to see God help us turn the page personally in our life as we turn uh, away from where we used to be and who what God wants us to be into the future and embrace that. And the way that we do that is through the process called repentance. And so we're giving God our attention initially or intentionally over the next couple weeks to pray into fast. So just, you know, we intentionally decided not to start the fast today because there's some kind of game on today and people like to eat around that, but we're starting it tomorrow. And then that season, the next couple weeks will culminate on a gathering on Tuesday night, the 18th. We'll meet, gather here at the church to, to come together, to worship, to take communion together and kind of seal this kind of new time that God is leading us into. Now there's a second thing that's going to impact that night that I wanted you to be aware of as well. So I shared a last couple of weeks ago about the opportunity that came to us really two months ago. This wasn't even on our radar, but the possibility of actually purchasing a building as we're in this transition of leaving this place to find a new church home. So I'm pleased to tell you that this last Thursday, we were able to settle, to come to terms with the owner of the building on a purchase price and a purchase contract. So we are moving towards buying a building, which is awesome. Incredible. So, so just to give you a little, little detail, so it's exciting, but we're at like step five of a hundred, okay? So there's a lot of steps to go to get to where we're going to be. And the reason that this, we've seen God on this, and I'll explain more of this because part of the process that we walk through in the purchase of a building as a Foursquare church is that the, part of that process is we have to have a vote of our, our congregation to make sure that everyone's in agreement as we move forward in this purchase. And so actually what we will be doing on the 18th as well is a portion of our service won't just be, it will be a focus on worship and prayer and, and communion together, but also I'll take a, uh, some time to kind of present the specific details of what this whole process looks like, and then we'll have an opportunity to vote. So if this is your church home, I strongly encourage you to make sure that you're there. If you have other plans at night, try to rearrange them because we need to come together as a church body as we, it's just as significant in prayer and fasting as it is in voting for the future of what we're talking about with a building. The reason this building is so appealing is because it comes with a tenant that's already in it, in portion of it, that is leasing it, that brings in a good amount of income per month, which if we get past the initial down payment and permit process and construction, it will reduce our monthly building cost by almost 90%. It's crazy because we'll actually have income to offset our loan payment. But before we can get there, and I'll talk more about this in the next few weeks, is that we are going to have to raise between three and four hundred thousand dollars in the next six months. So we're looking. We're having. Uh, we're obviously going to get a loan and some different things, and our district is going to help us with funding. But as a church family, we need to come up with that much money. Now, I've seen. We've seen an incredible turnaround in our finances in the last year, and so I know that through the generosity that you have and what God has been doing in our church, four hundred thousand dollars is not too much for God to raise. Wouldn't you agree? So, but that means that all of us have to be willing. That means all of us. And again, I don't look at your giving records, so I don't know if you give or you don't give or how much you give. But if this is your church family, you need to be giving to right size. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is think and pray about how can you make a pledge, which means I will commit to over the next six months giving this much money. So that means we need to think, when you think of giving over and above your tithe, which is what this is, it's called sacrificial giving, which means we should feel it a little bit. It means we look at what we were planning on doing with our tax return and maybe we redirect it. 
Or we're thinking of making a larger purchase and we can, we can defer that purchase for another year. Or whether other sources of income. Uh, because we need to be able to consider, okay, God, how can we get there? The whole reason we're doing this is we want to get to a place where our building doesn't own us. We own the building so that we can invest in ministry and mission in our community. This gets us there. And what's crazy is we would actually own a building. Because you know what? It's not just about this time and this generation. It's about the future of New Hope. Because someday, someday when I'm not the pastor 20, 30, 40 years from now, wouldn't it be great for the next pastor to come in and not have a building payment? And the church not to be burdened by that because we can focus on mission. That's where we want to go. God's providing opportunity. So I'm a little excited. You can tell. I'll stop talking now and let pray so we can receive our offering. All right? Lord Jesus, we are so amazed at your faithfulness to us. Lord, you have been with us as individuals. You have been with us as a church family. Through the ups and downs, Lord, through our victories and through our defeats, you never leave us. You never forsake us. You are always constant. And Lord, we thank you that you are bringing us into this new season. And Lord, even as we give this morning, you invite us to be a part of your kingdom and a part of your mission through our gifts. And so we thank you, Lord, that you not only are with us, but you invite us to be with you in what you're doing in our world and our community. So thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give today in your name. Amen. If you're sitting over on this side of the sanctuary, there's a basket underneath the seat there on the end of the aisle. If you'd grab that and then pass it this direction and the ushers will collect those as they make their way all the way across the sanctuary today. And as you're doing that, I would like you to go ahead, if you would, grab your Bibles and uh, any other device that you use to access the scriptures. And we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And we're continuing on in our series, Disciple, and understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're looking at Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew. And so we are into this part of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus starts hitting really hard on some really difficult issues. And he goes through this, pa- this pattern where he says, you've heard that it was said, and now I tell you. And so you've heard kind of what the law or the interpretation of the law has been, and now I give you what the intent is and how you should live your life. So as we go through these things, these are not easy things to tackle. Uh, Last week, lust, everybody's favorite topic, right? This week, everybody's second favorite topic, divorce. We all come to church because we want to hear about divorce. And one of the things that that is, in a sense, I was talking to a fellow pastor yesterday uh, about this, that is a relief for me as a pastor. One of the reasons that I like to teach through books or teach through portions and lengths of Scripture is because it forces me to have to deal with issues that God wants to deal with, even if I don't want to. That's what this Sunday is. I'm thankful because this is the next passage of Scripture that comes in Matthew chapter 5. We have to deal with it. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus was dealing with it. And so this morning, we're going to talk about divorce. And before we get into the specifics of it, I want you to be reminded of this. Jesus has some very pointed and very specific things to say about divorce, as well as does Scripture, and we'll talk about that this morning. But you need to understand, just like I mentioned last week, because of the impact of divorce in our lives, whether you've experienced one or not, you need to understand that one of the things that will accompany this message, much like last week, is this little thing called shame. And in fact, even as you maybe walked in today and you saw the word divorce on the bulletin, you're like, oh, great. And you already feel it. I want you to ratchet down the volume on shame today because if you don't, you won't be able to hear what Jesus wants you to hear. Because the beautiful thing about God's grace through Jesus' death on the cross is that God is gracious and extends forgiveness even to those who've experienced divorce. 
He doesn't give us license to have divorce, but he gives us forgiveness for it. And you and I need to understand that today because no one should leave this place feeling shame. The only thing that we should leave with is a sense of conviction. See, shame drives us from God. Conviction drives us to God and embracing what he's wanted us to do. That's what he wants to bring us to this morning. And in fact, just so you kind of get, get a, an overview and an understanding of where we are in terms of what divorce looks like in the church and really in our nation to kind of give us a context. You know, for years and years, especially in the church, uh, there's been a statistics that, that's been quoted that's not accurate. And that is that, that, that the divorce rate is at 50%. Basically what people are saying, that half of all marriages end in divorce. It's not true. Uh, when that study was done, what was happening is they were only taking one year at a time, and they were taking all the marriages that happened, and then the divorces happened, not realizing that those marriages occurred before that year. And so the statistics were totally off. So in more recent times, they've gone through and they've done more, more research and discovered that really, realistically, about one in three marriages, either Christian or non-Christian, ends in divorce. That's still way too high. One in three that divorce impacts that relationship. They've also discovered in doing the research that the divorce rate was at its highest in the 70s and the 80s. And it's funny when people heard that, like, hey, then we're doing really good. You get into the 90s and now we're into a new, you know, this new, this new century and everything's going great. You know, people aren't getting divorced as much as they used to. Well, you know what's happening? It's happening on the front end. Because people are so afraid to divorce, they just said, let's just forget marriage altogether. And so the rate of people living together continues to climb. The divorce rate right drop, it's because people aren't getting married. But they're choosing to live together, which is not the answer either. And when they've done the research, what they've discovered is that the biggest myth that people buy into that leads to divorce is that somehow I will be happier with somebody else. That somehow that enters into the equation and we start thinking down those roads and thinking, man, it's got to be better than this, this relationship. It's got to be better than this spouse. And somehow if I rid myself of this relationship, I can move on and I can be happier. It's a myth. And the reason it's a myth is because the number one reason divorce happens is because people refuse to change. It's always the spouse's fault, isn't it? Don't we always know that? It's never our fault. They won't change I'll, I'll do my part if they do their part. And so because we don't want to change and want everybody else to change around us, instead of changing ourselves, we think if we change our context, things will change. And they don't. Because wherever you go, your stuff follows you. How many know that's true? So but because before we jump into this passage, I want you to understand the impact that divorce makes on almost all of us. So I'm going to ask you in just a moment, not yet, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if... You have experienced divorce. You've gone through a divorce in your life. You've come from a family that comes from divorced parents. You have a sibling or you have a family member that has gone through divorce. Raise your hand. Look around the room. That's the majority in the room right now. See, because divorce is not just for one third of all marriages. Divorce impacts almost all of us. And that's when we get into Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. Jesus talks about this thing called divorce. Because it was an issue 2,000 years ago, and it's still an issue for you and I today. So let me read these two verses, and then we'll talk about, we'll walk through a number of questions together about this topic. So Jesus says, It has been said to you, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Ouch. If you're here last week, remember we talked about the religious leaders had, had come up with a broad definition 
of adultery or lust or sexual sin. And Jesus made it very specific, and, or actually very, very, very wide in terms of saying, it's not just this. Remember, they said they could justify, I can have sex with an unmarried woman as long as I married her and not commit adultery. Jesus said, no, if you even look at her to, to lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So Jesus kind of gets really specific again in this week, and he says, you know, you said, and, and what happens is, you know, God gives the law to Israel, and then they find lots of ways to interpret it. So they start issue, issuing in the Old Testament. They would issue a certificate of divorce for any reason. Any reason that a man could come and somehow justify it. She sneezed too loud and I didn't like that, so I'm going to divorce her. She burnt the toast, so I'm going to divorce her. Whatever it is, there were all these reasons. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's make it really specific here. Let me give you the reason. And here's the thing as we talk about this this, this morning. Understand, the context of this conversation today has to do with what Jesus is saying to Two people who have stated, I am committing myself to following Jesus in my life. Therefore, my marriage should follow suit. Therefore, these are the things that Jesus says in regard to our lives. If you've not chosen to follow Jesus, this is really good advice for you. But it's not something necessarily that is binding for you because you haven't made the commitment to fully give your life to Jesus yet. But understanding this, you and I need to know the way that God has set this up for us. And there's some questions that flows out of this. Let me answer just some of the, one of the big key questions that people ask. Is divorce ever permitted? The answer is yes, it is. Now let me, before I go through, there's three things I want to just highlight. But let me help you understand. Divorce is never an option. It is a last resort. It is not ever a good thing. Because it is not the thing that God has purposed for us in marriage. You need to hear that. Again, turn down the shame factor here because I've had people come to me and say, man, that was a really good divorce. No, it wasn't. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good divorce. And what they're referring to is somehow the custody battle and the, the finances somehow went smoother than all the, the rockiness of the relationship. So it was a good divorce. It's still not what God had desired. It's still not God purposed because God purposes one thing through Jesus throughout human history in all of our relationship and it's called reconciliation. That's what God desires. But because God is gracious, he does allow in extreme circumstances that divorce may happen. But it is not the best option. I want to underscore that. So the first thing, the first area where divorce is permitted is in the area of adultery. It's what Jesus just said in verse 32. Or in, this, in a couple of verses we looked at. Also, he reiterates the same kind of thing when he says, Moses, in, in uh, Matthew 19, verse 8, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. It's not what God desired. He said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness marries another woman and commits adultery. So again, he's giving that little clause, but it is only in extreme situations like adultery. It is not ultimately what God desires. And intercourse is not just the only parameter for adultery. It's any sexual contact or activity with somebody who is not your spouse. Because ultimately, remember what Jesus said, the definition of lust goes back to the heart. And say, it's kind of like, you know, we can kind of parse words and we can kind of split hairs and say, well, we didn't really have sex but it doesn't matter if you had intercourse or not. Sorry, this, there's little bits of PG-13 today, so I apologize that you're going to come through like last week because we're going to deal with this honestly as Jesus has dealt with it honestly. Second thing, it's really quiet in here. It always gets really quiet when we get serious, isn't it? The second area that there is, it is permitted, but again, it's not the best option, is through the process of abandonment. 
So Paul references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 15, or 12 through 15. He says, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother uh, has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And in verse 13, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband, or believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean as it is they are holy. There's a covering that comes in that commitment. But then in verse 15, it says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. And a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So what Paul says is, listen, again, it's never the best option. But in the case of abandonment, where somebody walks away from the marriage, and by the way, in my experience, not always, but most of the time, When somebody makes a decision to walk away from a marriage and there was no adultery involved simply because they found some reason to justify it, many times they are not only choosing to walk away from their marriage, they're choosing to walk away from their faith. And that's what Paul's talking about. It's someone who's really not a believer at all. They may have claimed to be one, but they're not really a believer. And now because they're so unhappy in their marriage, they're willing even to walk away from their own faith because somehow they'll be happier over there. Paul says the believing person is not no longer bound in that relationship. So divorce is allowed to happen. Again, it's not the best option. And then there's one final thing I want to touch on. And this is where I just, for a moment, you're going to hear my pastor's perspective and pastor's heart. I'm not going to give you chapter and verse because this is not something that is specifically in the scriptures. But in my experience, it's something that I think that God may allow. And that is in the context of extreme physical abuse. Where somebody lives in a context where they're constantly being battered, they're constantly being beat up to the point where their life may be in danger. As a pastor, I've sat with people in my office and I've told them, listen, God doesn't like like divorce. He would prefer that you don't. But at the same time, he values you. And I don't think he's going to ask you to live in a relationship that's going to cost you your life. I've, I've watched, I've seen women sit in my office and she comes out of this experience where her husband's just choked her almost to the point of being unconscious. And then he put her head through a wall and she says, should I stay? And I said, I don't think you should. I said, I think if you stay, you may, na- you may not survive. And so I, I, that's just me. You know, Paul says, I, not the Lord. That's John Amstead saying, and when I get to heaven, if God wants to correct me, that, that's okay. But that's where the only thing that I would stay, not have chapter and verse to say, hey, But remember, these are all extreme exceptions. They're not the rule because God has something far greater for you and I when it comes to marriage, which leads to the next question that many people ask. Is remarriage permitted? The answer is yes in extreme circumstances. Again, it's the same kind of thing. So in the case of adultery, are you allowed to remarry? Yes, you're allowed to remarry. Is it what God wants? No, not necessarily. But will God allow it? Yeah, he will. My sister, a number of years ago, um, talk about being impacted by divorce. My mom came from a divorce household. My sister, closest in age to me, has been through a divorce. And it was a result of her first husband cheating on her. And I remember I, I just admired my sister because she was convinced as the scriptures tell us, that God is committed to reconciliation in all of our relationships. Therefore, when she found out that her husband had cheated on her, she didn't walk out of the marriage. In fact, she fought hard for the marriage. She actually, it was kind of interesting, she forced him to stick around for at least a year to go through counseling with her because she wanted to be committed to reconciliation in the marriage. And eventually, tragically, at the end of that year, 
He said, I did what you want me to do, but I no longer want to be married to you. And so she said, okay, I've done what I can do. I tried to reconcile the relationship. That's the extreme circumstance. So she was no longer bound to her first husband because what? The violation of adultery. Same thing with the abandonment. It's the same thing. Somebody walks away from the marriage, walks away from their faith, then no longer is there, they bound. So there is the opportunity to be remarried. So again, it's ultimately God's desire is reconciliation in the context of the current relationship. Another question is, should divorce ever be promoted? No. It's the last option. If someone's giving you the advice to say, you know what, you really could be happier somewhere else if you just got a divorce, that's not what God wants you to hear. Okay, it, it, again, it, it's missing the point. We'll talk about this in a moment, about the importance of what marriage really looks like. But marriage is so important to the makeup of who we are as human beings and the way God has created us that that's the purpose that he has for us. And remember, and we'll get this in a moment, marriage itself down to the most intimate level, is a reflection of the nature of God. It's not just a relationship that we happen to choose in life. It's a reflection of the oneness of between the Father and the Son. It's a reflection of the nature of God. And it's male and female come together, two different entities becoming one. It's, it's this beautiful picture that God paints. So God doesn't want separation that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But divorce is not something that you and I should look for. And the reason I say that, you, this is my, again, my experience as a pastor. I have had so many people come to me and they are looking for justification for divorce. Somehow, if Pastor John says it's okay, then I'm free to go and I can go be divorced. There's very few people who have ever walked out of my office happy after that conversation. Because what's happened in them is that they've come to grips with this reality that there is no reason, biblically, that they should be getting a divorce. They're going to have to learn to come to grips with what God is saying to them about their life and about their spouse, and allowing God to transform them, and God to transform their spouse, so they can remain married. It's not the option that we want to go after. So what is the impact? Why is this such an uh, an important topic for us? What is the impact of divorce? Uh, Before I highlight three things that have to do with what, how divorce impacts our lives, is that you and I need to understand, again, turn down the shame on this, but God feels very strongly about divorce. That's why in, in Malachi 2.16, he actually uses the phrase, I hate divorce. Is it because God hates people? No, God loves people. But he knows what divorce will do in our lives and relationship. That's why he hates it. Because it's less than what he purposed for our lives. So what does divorce do to you and I? What does it do to the relationships around us? The first thing you can see is that it greatly diminishes the capacity we have for healthy relationships. When we feel the impact of divorce or we walk through divorce, there's something that it does to us that impacts us for the future. God redeems things. God forgives things. But like we talked about last week, you can't rewrap your Tonka truck and pretend it's brand new. If you weren't here, you need to go listen and figure out what in the world I'm just talking about, okay? There's future impact. There is forgiveness for sin. But there are many times there is impact for our sin that carries us into the future that we have to be aware of. Divorce is the same way. See, because there's this perception that in our, in our culture that if I get a divorce, then I know if I can weather the storm of the divorce, I can get to be with another person and then I will be happier. The problem is you can change marriages, but you can't change yourself because you're still the same person you were in the previous relationship. 
And therefore, you carry all your debris with you. And then what ends up happening is, surprise, you wake up one day and realize, oh my goodness, I'm making the same decisions. I'm doing the same thing that I did before. In fact, my spouse looks different, but they're really the same person. I married the same person. Or you tried to marry the antithesis of the person from your previous relationship, only to discover you're still the same person. And that's because you and I can't change by just changing the context of relationship. It follows us. It impacts us. It's because there's, there's a residual that comes. And that's why Jesus said, he even said, you know, if you remarry, and if you marry a woman who's, who's been divorced, and you cause her to be an adulterer, and you're an adulterer, why? Because it still follows you. But there's still forgiveness for that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. See, there are things that happen in our life that stay with us. That even when we don't realize that they're there, they, they tend to come up at the times that we would hope they wouldn't. And that's why it's really interesting. You can read statistics. If you've been divorced once, when you remarry, you have an extremely high rate of chance of being divorced again. That's why a lot of people who go to their second marriage end up in a third marriage. And a lot of times by the third marriage, they think, I don't even believe in marriage anymore. Because that's still in you. It still happens. There's, a, there's this impact that you feel. And you might not think, hey, I'm good. I came through a good divorce, and now I'm in a new marriage, and it's all better. Just wait. You're going to have to come to grips with what's happened in your past in order for you to move forward. Things stay with us. Man, I, I discovered this. I think I've shared this before. We were coming back from a flight from Brazil a number of years ago on a missions trip, and we were outside of L.A., and the, we were probably, I don't know, like 35, 36,000 feet, and the, the aircraft lost altitude rapidly i mean like like the biggest roller coaster you have ever been on in your life and i love to fly and, and i loved being on planes and and i remember the altitude we lost altitude to the point where literally you came out of your seat your seatbelt holding you you know collectively 400 people packed on this 747 were like oh like you're going down this huge hill and then it was quiet everybody was freaked out and I remember when finally we got back on the ground, I was relieved that we got back on the ground. But it was probably about two or three years later was the next time that I actually flew commercial. And so I got on the plane. In fact, it was Kim and I were going on our honeymoon. That's the first time I'd gotten on a commercial airliner since that time. And so I got on the plane and we sat down and she sat down next to me. And all of a sudden my heart started to beat really fast. I'm like, what's going on? I know I'm really excited. This is my honeymoon. I'm next to the woman of my dreams. This is great. And then I started to feel something really weird on my palms started sweating and kim saw me doing this she's like what's wrong i'm like i'm really nervous and she's thinking yeah i'm sure you are this is our honeymoon right and it had nothing to do with her sorry at the moment but in that moment everything came back to me i started to freak out i I thought you know what i know why because three years earlier the last time i was on a plane we lost altitude and i thought i was going to die And I thought I was beyond that until I sat there on a plane and realized, oh my goodness, it's all coming back to me. It's still impacting me today. I thought I was beyond it. And I've actually talked to people and seen people when it comes to marriage and divorce, the same aha moment comes and like, oh, I haven't changed a bit. It's still there. Because I've somehow thought if I change the context, I can change myself. The second point of impact for divorce is that it violates the security and the sanctuary of the home our homes are supposed to be a sanctuary for our families and for our kids and what happens when divorce occurs is that even in your best intentions to go through a divorce you will impact your children you will impact your relationships 
And it's been shown and it's been proven that children who come from intact homes have a better chance at living the life that they want to live than kids who come from a divorced home. Now listen to me. Okay, because I know already you're thinking, oh man, I've already doomed my kids because I've been divorced. God's grace is bigger than your divorce in your child's life. But those of you on the front end who are considering, you need to understand what you are considering. Because they've done studies, and it's shown that that children that come from intact homes, which is kind of funny, this kind of reflects the scriptures, that God knows what he's talking about when it comes to marriage. They actually do better in life physically, emotionally, and financially. They're healthier just by virtue of coming from a household that's intact, where mom and dad are present. Children that come from intact homes also have a less occurrence of addictive behavior in their lives. Because many times what happens in the life of a child is they react against the pain of the divorce and they become addictive in their behavior as a way to escape the reality of what's around them. It's also true that children normally do better in school when they come from intact homes. They do because there's something solid there. Children also, they're far less likely to abuse drugs or commit suicide when they come from an intact home. Now listen, ratchet down the shame again, okay? The reason I'm presenting this is because we're going to what God says and what God has shown out in our culture. Listen, it's a man and a woman in the commitment of marriage that does best for their kids. It's the way God's wired us. There's an impact in our lives. There's an impact on people around us. It just just doesn't affect each spouse. It affects everyone. Which leads to the, the third point of impact is that whether you know it or not, divorce will introduce the reality of shame into the life of a child. See, what happens, even when sometimes parents think, oh, we got divorced when my kids are young, they didn't really feel the impact. They felt the impact. Because what tends to happen, and I've watched it, when I've talked to people and and watched, especially kids, something happens in them that somehow they take on the responsibility of trying to make their parents' marriage work. Because they feel the tension in the household, so they try to become the peacemaker. And when their parents end up in divorce... They somehow take the responsibility like, what did I do wrong? Now, they know that their parents did something wrong, but they carry this. They carry this with them, this whole concept of shame. And there's something that that Paul gives a a very strong warning to us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. It says fathers, but it can be applied to both parents. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Divorce will discourage your kids. It won't encourage them. It will discourage them. It will set them back because this is what divorce does in a household. It underscores in a huge way that home is no longer safe. Home is no longer solid. It's not the place that I can go to as a sanctuary in my life because it's upside down and it doesn't exist like it's supposed to any longer because mom and dad are now apart. You and I need to understand that because our kids need a sanctuary. Our kids need to know that home is safe, that mom and dad are safe, that even though the world may fall down around them, their home is solid. Because when that begins to rumble in their life and that begins to shake, other things start to fall apart. Maybe if you're like me as a parent, if you can think back to one of those moments in your life when your kids for the first time realized that you were human, that you were flawed. Anybody remember some of those? I can give you like 20 in my life. 
But that first moment where your kids growing up, there's this sense of innocence in them that they really believe that mom and dad are perfect and mom and dad are good and, and divorce just destroys that. But there's other things that we do. I've shared when I, you know, as a wonderful parent that I am, I forgot my kids at school. And, and it was horrific. To, I literally forgot my kids totally. I mean, if Kim wanted to call me, I would have just completely forgot about them the rest of the day. But she called me and she reminded me graciously and I went to the school to pick them up and and my five-year-old and my seven-year-old, Courtney and Jordan, sitting there with nobody else except their teacher. And I never knew that a five- and a seven-year-old could give it to their parent as much as my kids did in that car ride home. You know, but what, are they, what I picked up from the conversation, you know what they were saying to me? Dad, I can't believe that you're not perfect. That's what they were saying. I can't believe that you would even do that. I can't believe that you would forget us. That's not you. And I know it took a little while to recover. Courtney and Jordan are looking right now, smiling, thinking, God, Dad, you're going to tell that story again? Really? They've been gracious with me. And I think after like the last 10 years, we finally recovered from that. But it's something in us because even in that little incident, I could see it in my, the face of my kids. This shook them. Think about the impact of divorce. Where mom and dad are the only context the kids have. And now mom and dad no longer are together. That will shake a kid to the core. It will bring shame into their life when it's really not something that God has purposed for them. Now, let me continue to move. I know this is a heavy message, but we, we need to deal with this. So, what is marriage supposed to be like? Now we've heard the bad news, which is divorce. But what is God purposed marriage to be like? God is the author of marriage. And he gives us this concept that's called one flesh as a description of what marriage is supposed to look like. So let me read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. It says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and he will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. Marriage is a miracle. Every wedding that I've ever done, I say this, this phrase. You've come to witness a, a wedding, but what you are going to walk away from this is you've experienced watching a miracle. Just think about this. Two individual, separate, somewhat strong-willed individuals coming together to unify their lives to be what the Bible calls one flesh, so one heart, one mind, one spirit moving in the same direction. That's a miracle. Anybody want to agree to that? That's a miracle that only God can orchestrate in anybody's life. Because left to our own devices, we go our own way. But this is what God has purposed. Why? Because it is a reflection of the nature of God. God is not divided. Therefore, marriage should not be divided. When Jesus prays and he talks to the Father and he says, the Father and I are one. It's the same concept. Husband and wife are one. And because of that, God has purposed for a man and a woman to be together, not divided, but united in every part of who they are. It doesn't mean uniformity, that somehow you act like each other, you dress like each other, you talk like each other. That would be weird. That's not what God's talking about. But that you are unified in the purpose of life and you're on the same page all the time. Even when you're not on the same page, you find a way to get there because it's one flesh. See, because God cares so deeply, he wants us to be united. That's God's love for us to experience the depth of what marriage is. It's kind of like, as an, as an illustration, it's like in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you remember the story when the one mother 
laid, rolled over on her baby at night and she killed her baby by accident. And so in the middle of the night, she goes and takes another woman's baby to, to be her own. And then they wake up the next morning and there's this dispute and they come before Solomon and they say, Solomon, this, you know, they're fighting. This is my child, this is my child. And what his ruling is, remember, he says, divide the child. And of course, immediately the real mother says, no, 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 why? Because she loves her child so much so that she would rather see her child alive with another woman than divided and dead. The same thing is true for God's heart for us in marriage. He would rather see us whole in one than somehow separated and losing part of who we are because we've decided what? To embrace divorce because we'll be happier somewhere else. God wants us to be unified. Now, let me just, pardon me, and I know I didn't give this warning earlier, but this, the next like three minutes is going to be PG-13 again, okay? Just going to have to be. We're going to deal with this. The most powerful statement in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, is when the Bible says of Adam and Eve, they were naked and they felt no shame. It's the most powerful statement. Now, just a moment. I want you just to think about this, okay? Adam and Eve were naked, and they didn't even know they were naked. Okay, just, just think about this. Adam and Eve had no clothing and had no need for clothing because they had nothing to hide because there was no embarrassment, there was no shame. They were absolutely naked. Now, I know you're thinking, wait, last week you told me not to think about those kind of things, and now you're telling me to do that. Just for a moment, okay? The reason I want you to think about that is because before sin entered the equation in Genesis chapter 3, that's what God purposed for marriage. Adam and Eve had no barriers, even clothing between the two of them. They had nothing to hide. They had no shame. They had no secrets. They had no little quiet corners of their life that was theirs. They were fully united. That's what God has purposed for us. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a human relationship where at all times you were fully known by another human being and you had no shame? That's what God's purpose. That's what marriage should be. That's what God wants for us. That's the fulfilling part of marriage. I can tell you, Kim and I don't have a perfect marriage, but one thing is true about us. She knows everything about me, and I know everything about her. The good, the bad, everything. We fully disclose it. Why? Because we want to be able to be fully, in every aspect, have no shame because we know each other fully. And that's important because there's a tendency when we come into marriage to think, okay, maybe I have a little escape clause down here. Maybe I need to hold out a little bit because, you know, if it doesn't work out, I need to protect myself. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with couples and they come to me, and this still, it still to this day surprises me. They'll come to me and say, you know, we're working on a prenup. I'm like, what? Yeah, we, we think that we may, should make sure that we make sure that we control and keep our finances separate so that we don't, you know, in case this thing doesn't work out, that neither one of us gets burned. I'm like, well, you're doomed to fail. That's pretty much what I tell them. Because if you go in thinking that, then you've already set yourself up that there is an escape clause. Another thing that's not quite as extreme, but just, just a little side note that I encourage you. I have other couples come to me and say, you know what? We really think that we should have separate bank accounts. Now, this is just my personal opinion. If you have separate bank accounts, don't do it. Don't do it. You say, well, wait a second. You know, this is my money, and I, I make more money than he does, or I make more money than she does, and this is my money. We, we'll we'll kind of have a common area where we'll pay for the bills, but we want to protect ourselves and have our own because I want to be able to enjoy my stuff, and she enjoys her stuff. The problem, what you've just done, is you've set up a whole arena of your life 
that your spouse is not a part of. You've set yourself up for division. You've set yourself up for making decisions that you can hide from your spouse. So you're not one flesh. You're divided. Because by the way, it's not your money anyway. It's God's money. Kim and I never even thought about having two separate accounts. It's not my money anyway. When I get a check, I hand it over to Kim. Guys, we all know the way that works, right? Because if you and I do that, then we are setting ourselves up to be separate. There is no separation. And I am convinced, guys, you need to understand this, and ladies too, but guys, I'm coming from my perspective. There is nothing about you that your wife shouldn't know. I have guys come up to me all the time. I can't tell my wife that. If you can't tell your wife that, there's a problem. Now you think, wow, it's going to devastate her. Yeah, it's going to devastate her. But she would rather know than you keep that hidden from her. And then she finds out. Because you should be able to say, okay, I'm going to have the courage to embrace what's going to happen. And the wound this is going to create in my wife or wife for your husband. But I need to get through this so God can bring reconciliation and healing so that there's no separation. There's no division between us. The sooner you do that, the better it's going to be for your relationship. You should now. Now, guys, with accountability, great. Have accountability. But you better make sure that you're not hiding it from your wife. She needs to know. Wives, your husband needs to know. Why? Because you're one flesh. That's the bond that God wants to create for you. So let me just close with a couple of thoughts to to help move on from this. Because you may be thinking a couple different things in terms of the questions in your mind. Think, okay, I have been divorced. In fact... Pastor John, as you're describing, I've been divorced and there was an adultery and I remarried, so now I am an adulterer. According to the Bible, you are. That's what it says. So you're thinking, well, what do I do now? Maybe you're here and you're, you're actually, in your mind, if you're honest, you're contemplating, you still have an escape clause. You're thinking, hey, man, this is really not going well. It's a struggle. There's always divorce. I want to address those things. First of all, if you're in the context of you have been divorced and now you're remarried, What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 is stay put. Okay, because you're thinking, well, now does God want me to divorce my second wife and then go back to my first wife? No, because then you're divorcing again. What is God's heart for people through Jesus? Reconciliation. So if you are currently married and you've gone through divorce, first and foremost, remember, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It doesn't give us license to have divorces, but God forgives you for the decision you made in your first marriage. But he also desires for you, not necessarily if you are currently married, to go back and remarry your first spouse. But what he desires for you is to be reconciled to them. Reconciliation does not mean remarriage. It means I go back to a broken relationship and I ask forgiveness for where I was wrong. And I own my failure in that. And I do what Paul says in Romans 12. As far as it depends on me, I seek to live at peace with all people. And then you leave their response up to them. But what's beautiful is that God can redeem that relationship, which will translate to the current marriage you're in, redeeming that as well. So stay put. Don't unmarry, remarry, divorce, and then don't do that. Stay where you're at. Secondly, if you're contemplating, I'm gonna have, I, I think it might be better. Let me just tell you, it's never better. It's never better unless... You surrender your life to Jesus and allow him to change you. That's the only hope for your marriage in the future. It's the only hope for any marriage, no matter what number you're on, is that if you surrender, why? Because the biggest reason for divorce is people won't change. And the only person who can change you 
is Jesus Christ himself. And you surrender him and you let him change. You know, Kim and I went through the same thing and her parents shared a story with us when we were, when we were first married that helped us. They both came to the conclusion, Kim and I came to the conclusion, we can't change the other person. We can only surrender to God changing us. And we both prayed. I know Kim's parents did it and we did it. God, change me. Don't change her, change me. Because how many times have we prayed the change her, change him prayer? doesn't work really well, does it? Because usually God says, you don't worry about them. Let's focus on what you're doing with in your life. So understanding this today, what I, I want us to do, and I'm going to pray in a moment. You, you may be here and you need to embrace God's forgiveness. The reality of the cross is Jesus' death for you and I. Tim said it earlier. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we've, we're, we've gotten our life together and then somehow, oh, we get access to God's love and forgiveness. No, it's despite that. It's despite because we're not good enough. We don't earn it. And your forgiveness is not dependent on your feelings or your justification. It is dependent on God's love and his provision for forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. That's why if you choose to confess your sin and turn from your past, you are forgiven. And some of you right now need to know from your past as you walk through the process of either reconciliation or you walk through the process of asking God for forgiveness, you are forgiven for your past. No one should leave this room today feeling shame. Because if you're feeling shame, you're listening to the enemy instead of listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit who wants to move you forward. So with that understanding, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and bow your heads because I want to pray specifically for these areas in our lives. Because ultimately what God wants us to do is to be able to trust him for reconciliation, trust him for recovery in our relationships. So I know that this morning has not been easy, and I know this topic is not easy. But it's something that's important to God's heart because he loves us so much and he wants what's best and what's right for us. So in a moment I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for one group of you here that you know that you've walked through divorce and you know that You don't need somebody beating you up because you know it's been wrong and you know the impact in your own life and you've even seen the impact in your kids. I'm going to pray that you would allow God's forgiveness to come to you to begin to restore and reconcile the broken relationships of your past so that he can allow you to reconcile with what's happened in the past so that you can be in a right relationship currently. Second group that I want to really pray for is those who have come up in a home where you have experienced the impact of divorce because your parents were divorced. And you have carried that pain and you have carried that shame and you even have carried resentment towards your parents. In fact, that resentment has almost defined you in your life. God wants you to realize a couple things. He can free you from the shame that you feel of your parents' divorce. And he can forgive you for the resentment towards them. He's asking you to extend them forgiveness for their humanity and brokenness and sin in your life. Because the only way that you're going to move forward in your life and the only way that you might be able to experience a marriage in your future that God has purposed for you or even the marriage that you're in right now is if you're willing to forgive your parents for their failure in their life. God wants to set you free through forgiveness today. And those of you who are even considering divorce this morning, God wants to help you to see there is a better way. There is a better prayer that God would change you and you would leave the other person up to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So Lord Jesus, we 
we come before you today and we thank you that you cared enough about us to not remain silent on the topic of divorce. Because you have something greater in mind than the failure of divorce. You have the success of marriage. And so, Lord, I ask that those who've experienced that deep wound and impact and failure and sin of divorce in their life, that you would bring your forgiveness to bear on that failure, just as you bring forgiveness for all of our sins. That we would confess the brokenness of our lives and our failures, and we would experience, Lord, the exchange, that amazing exchange where you take our sin and failure and you give us your righteousness so that you would cover that failure. And though, Lord, I also pray for those who have been impacted by their parents' divorce. I pray that you would heal the brokenness in them and you would give them the courage and the strength to extend forgiveness, that you would allow them to release the bitterness and the resentment in their souls so that they can truly forgive their parents and then move forward into the future so that what happened in the previous generation will not happen in the next one. And then, Lord, those who may be considering... Divorce is an option. Lord, I pray that you would close that door. And that, Lord, we would submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit in a way that says, Lord, I want to be the best husband, the best wife that I can be, but I know I can't be. Therefore, Jesus, I surrender to you. Change me. Make me into the person or the spouse that you want me to be so that ultimately my marriage can be what you purposed. We can be one flesh. We can be fully known and fully accepted and fully fulfilled in what you've purposed for husband and wife together. We thank you, Jesus, for your words. Now help us to live them out in your name. Amen.